All right, now that we got all our jokes out of the way before the recording, <laughs> tonight we're going to be covering chapter 21. Amen. Amen. It's the life of Jehoram. There's no way around the fact that this is a dismal chapter in the history of Judah. Our unofficial title this evening is Royal Pain in the Past. (laughs) Things are bad. They're dark. They're diseased. And if we were left to the mercy of our circumstances alone, there'd be little hope for any of us. Praise be to the living God that we are not at the mercy of our circumstances. We, like Israel, have placed our hope in the promises of God rather than our present performance. That was a good place for you to say amen. Amen. Tonight is going to be a good night. It's going to be full of faith. It's going to be full of light. And in His light, we will see light tonight. We're going to pray and jump straight into the text because we have a lot for you tonight. So I have a question. Is there an anointed man of the... There we go. Pray for that Miss Jennifer read the text tonight, and so we're going to start with chapter 21 and read through that, and then we'll get into expounding on it. Then Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoram's brother, the son of Jehoshaphat, was Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariahu, Michael, and Shephat. All these were sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father had given them many gifts of silver and gold and articles of value, as well as fortified cities in Judah. But he had given the kingdom to to Jehoram because he was his firstborn son. When Jehoram established himself firmly over his father's kingdom, he put all of his brothers to the sword, along with some of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, because of the covenant the Lord had made with David, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. He had promised to maintain a lamp for him and his descendants forever. In the time of Jehoram, Edom rebelled against Judah and set up its own kingdom. So Jehoram went there with his officers and all of his chariots. The Edomites surrounded him and his chariots commanders, but he rose up and broke through by night. To this day, Edom had been in rebellion against Judah. Libna revolted at the same time because Jehoram had forsaken the Lord, the God of his fathers. He had also built high places on the hills of Judah and caused the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves 
and had led Judah astray. Jehoram received a letter from Elijah, the prophet, which said, This is what the Lord, the God of your fathers, David, said. You have not walked in the ways of your father Jehoshaphat or of Asa, king of Judah, but you have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and you have led Judah and the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves just as the house of Ahab did. You have also murdered your own brothers, members of your father's house, men who were better than you. So now the Lord is about to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and everything that is yours with a heavy blow. You yourself will be very ill with a lingering disease of the bowels. Causes your bowels to come out. The Lord aroused against Jehoram the hostility of the Philistines and of the Arabs who lived near the Cushites. They attacked Judah, invaded it, and carried off all the goods found in the king's palace, together with his sons and wives. Not a son was left to him except Ahaziah, the youngest. After all this, the Lord afflicted Jehoram with an incurable disease of the bowels. In the course of time, at the end of the second year, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great pain. His people made no fire in his honor as they had for his fathers. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He passed away with no one's regret and was buried in the city of David, but not even in, but not in the tombs of the kings. 20 verses tonight. 32-year-old when he began to reign. Eight years he reigned and died from a deadly blowout. <laughs> you couldn't write a script like this if you wanted to. Yeah. Tonight, we're going to handle it seriously, and we're going to laugh a little because it's funny. Amen. We're going to hop right into verse 1, and we just ask that you pay as careful attention as you can because the consequences are quite high. Yeah? Yeah. Man. Linton? Verse 1. <laughs> All right. Now we spent a significant amount of time in Jehoshaphat's life. We're not going to review that this evening, but I'd like to simply say that he did not cease to exist. He's simply gone up higher at yeah. this point. The man is now resting with his fathers because he had completed his work. His work has now ceased, and he's entered into a Sabbath of the Lord. But it does call to mind the idea that there is a limited amount of time that we have to complete our work. There's a few passages we would like to hand out as we get going this evening that will help set our trajectory. Michael, why don't you get John 9, 4 through 5? Pat Rosales, if you get John 11, 9 through 10. Mr. Makowitz, if you get John 12, 35. Ms. Lynette, John 12, 46. Ruby, John 3.19 Nick Rosales Romans 12, 13.12 I'm so glad for a minute I never thought we were going to get out of the job. <laughs> well, I know somebody in a little preaching team that loves the gospel of John and, uh, It seems to have rubbed off on his disciples You can pick up in John 9 when you have it As long as it is day we must do the work of him who sent me Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Oh, come on now. 
Jehoshaphat struggled through dark times and prevailed. You remember the seasons where he started out as an oak of righteousness and he struggled as a reed? But the man struggled and prevailed and found his center. He became an oak of righteousness. Come on. He was an oak of righteousness that fought with darkness. Some days he wasn't winning quite like he wanted to, but he overcame. Yeah. He rested from his work and is presently gathered in the righteous Father and his fathers. He's in the great cloud of witnesses. He's laid down with men who went before him and completed their task. Saints, this is the goal, that we might complete our work while it is light, because dark is coming. Who is John 11? John 11, 9 to 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Now we saw some stumbling in Jehoshaphat's life. Those stumblings came from moments that he succumbed to the Samaritan darkness, yeah. the northern kingdom. But the northern kingdom was not Gentile. They weren't lost. They weren't these type of overtly evil people. It was that component in the kingdom, family, or inside of a believing person that opts for the revised will of God. Oh, no. You know the northern kingdom? Yes. They had places to worship. They had feast days, but they chose to revise it according to their liking. Uh-oh. They knew that they needed priests. They knew that they needed places of worship. They knew they needed festival days, but they chose priests other than God's priests. They chose places to worship other than God's designated place. Festival days other than God's designated festival days. This is what darkness looks like within the family of God. These are not pagans here. These are people that were part of the family of Israel. They still are part of the family of Israel. They have the Torah. They have the law. They broke away and decided to revise things their own way. The very fact that you can call them Israel means that they're a part of a believing community. Now, you might say, but wait, they're not believing. Isn't that always the issue? (laughs) A man that self-identifies as a believer and one that God identifies as a believer are two radically different things, even in this room. But let's go on to John 12, 35. John 12, 35. Then Jesus told them, You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Wow, that's the understatement of the year, isn't it? (laughs) When a kingdom, family, or a believer opts for the kind of revisions that the Samaritan northern kingdom revised, then they walk in darkness even while they claim that they're in the light. I see this all of the time in the body of Christ and we have to wise up to it. Without repentance... Darkness overtakes you. You stop even realizing where you revise your story. God said this, but five years later you have a different story about what God said. Because if you told the actual story, it would be too indicting. It would be too exposing. And you don't even realize that you're not telling the truth anymore. Anybody feel me in here? Got got some relatives, got some disgruntleds, got some areas of our own lives where it's hard to look at it soberly? This is exactly what Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John 
4.22. He said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. Well, they thought they knew. It is the story they agreed on. It was from the Samaritan Pentateuch. It was their own revised version. They still said they worshipped Yahweh. They were still in Israel. Their real problem was those other people, also called Israel. See, this goes on every day in the body of Christ. Let's move on. John 12, 46. It's 11 verses later. Who has it? All right, somebody say, no one. No No one. one. Jesus, the son of David, is the light. And trust in him means that even if we get into a dark place, dark situation, or find darkness inside of ourselves, we cannot stay in it. He's come and given us the gift of repentance. It's a heavenly gift. It's not one that stems from the earth. It's something that came down so that we might leave darkness and live in the light of God. Jehoshaphat repented and rested from his work. He found the light of God. It made him into an oak of righteousness. Tonight we're going to learn to stand in the light, regardless of what is going on around us. Who is John 3, 19? You know, this is one of those little-known passages that comes right after John 3.16. The passage that almost everyone holds to be their statement of faith. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that those who believe in Him will not perish. Well, He says in 19, this is the verdict. As if He says, look, this is the bottom line. Life, light has come into the world, but people love darkness. When a man stays in the revised will quote, unquote, revised will of God, when they say that God spoke to this and then spoke this to me about staying in this church or doing this or doing that, and then they alter it, they alter that truth, they alter the truth of God's word, they amend the true orthodox and orthopraxy faith, the Bible declares that it is because he loves darkness and doesn't want to expose his own wickedness. Oh, come on. It is so much easier to stay in darkness and blame everything else than it is just to come into the light and have your deeds exposed. These passages are not talking about the overtly lost, are they? No. They are speaking about the supposed as saved as well. Those who suppose themselves to be saved. This doesn't, this passage doesn't cease to be true just because you say you believe in John 3.16 and that you're in the kingdom. This applies to every stage of your walk with the Lord. If there is darkness... The tendency is to want to stay in darkness and not expose. But you know what? Jehoshaphat won the battle against darkness. Jehoshaphat won against that, and he exposed himself, and we will win too. Y'all want to win? Yes! Look, don't get confused. We cannot impose terminology that we've created after 2,000 years of reading this verse on the actual verse. When it says light has come into the world... The world there is not a synonym for lost people. Who did Jesus present himself to? His own. The believing community. The believing community preferred darkness to light because light meant their own wickedness 
would be exposed. All right, y'all ready to wake up? Yes. If you fall down in the parking lot, what is your first reaction? Look around. Why? You want to see whether your silliness was exposed or not. It's the first thing that happens. That is the sinful nature. You can't help it. It's there. Let's talk about how to win. Amen. Romans 13 and verse 12. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Come on, praise God! The night is almost over! That's good news. Amen. Read it again, brother. Let them hear it again. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. See, tonight we recognize corporately that defections, darkness, and deceit, they're everywhere. And there's an ever-present temptation to revise what we know God has said. A temptation to pick an easier more convenient, or less exposing Samaritan way. That's all around us. they got a few Samaritan centers of worship right outside our door. They're closed right now because they're scared of corona, but they're open every other day for every other activity, all aimed at one thing, making you feel like you are doing good with God irrespective of how much darkness is found in you. Since we recognize this truth, we choose tonight to arm ourselves with the light. We choose to overcome the darkness. We choose to set a course that will add us to that great cloud of witnesses, just like Jehoshaphat. I was so happy that the chapter opened with Jehoshaphat and not Jehoram because it gave us something positive to talk about. Jehoshaphat accomplished the will of God without revision. His flaws are recorded in the Word. He repented from them. And he's not defined as a reed. He's defined as an oak because he faced the darkness and he overcame it. Whether it was inside of him or outside of him, and that is our battle cry tonight. Tonight, we are going to win. But first, we have to descend into Jehoram's darkness, the darkness of Samaritan religion. And please don't think I'm talking about an ancient religion. It's very much alive in this room. So Brother Lentonius, if you can help us out, read verse 2 and verse 3. Sons of Jehoshaphat were Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariahu, Michael, and Shephatiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father had given them many gifts of silver and gold and articles of value, as well as fortified cities in Judah. But he had given the kingdom to Jehoram because he was his firstborn son. Saints, there are quite a few details in here that we're going to work through. But I want to start out by pointing out that he was referred to as the king of Israel. This could be a bit confusing, because in fact he's the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Here Israel is being used to denote the true kingdom, what God had intended, a unified kingdom. So going out and just saying, yeah, he is the king of it all, despite that a few are in rebellion. What's interesting about this, though, It's a bit ironic, if we're honest, is that 
His behavior is going to look an awful lot like the kings of Israel this evening. His own actions are going to resemble the kingdom that was just referred to. Now, with that in mind, as we progress, our goal is to remain in the light. We're going to intentionally examine the areas that his behavior becomes anything anything other than God's desire for Israel. He is the king of Judah, but he's going to act like the northern compromisers that are all around him. And it will defile him and his whole household. Now, we want you to notice in these couple of verses. I'm just curious. When you hear the words, king of Israel, is that positive or is that negative? Well, it entirely depends, doesn't it? It depends on which king of Israel we're talking about. It depends on what you mean when you say Israel. It depends on an awful lot. Did Ezra make a mistake when he referred to him as the king of Israel? No. Was, was Ezra referring to him as who should be the rightful king of Israel? Or was Ezra saying he's a king of Judah acting like a king of Israel? Well, welcome to the world of biblical interpretation. But Israel clearly is a defined nation from a family of God. And this man is clearly only reigning over the southern portion, but he reigns exactly like the northern compromise kings do. Yeah, maybe you were intended to have to wrestle with the answer to that question. It's like when somebody says, you are very religious. Is that a compliment or not? Well, a hundred years ago it would have been a compliment. Now we probably would mean that you are a legalistic, contentious person. But the word itself is a positive word. Israel defines the family that God wanted to bless on the earth. Period. Just to clarify as we keep going, verse 3, were sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. So Jehoram's father was the one that was referred to as the king of Israel. He comes from a line that is special, that was righteous. He was not disadvantaged in any way. His father's righteous life means that Jehoram steps onto a scene where he is surrounded by wealth, fortified cities, and a family that is prophetically named according to God's design. We have a slide, and we'd like to just look at the names of his brothers with you for just a moment. That's a bit hard for me to see, so I'm going to look on the screen and read it to you. Jehoram, Yahweh is high or great. Azariah. Helped or aided by Yahweh. Jahiel, God is the living one. Zechariah, Yahweh is renowned or remembered. Azarihu, Yahweh is helped. Mikael, who is or like God. Shephatiah, Yahweh judges. Listen, this man is surrounded by the prosperity of another man's righteousness. This is how discipleship and generations are supposed to look. He's starting in a better position than his father was left in. Now we're going to see what he does with what has been prepared for him. Also, these events are unfolding during the life of Elisha and at the end of the life of Elijah. Have another slide we'll take a look at with you. So to get some background of what's going on during the time of Jehoram. In 1 Kings 22, Jehoram succeeds Jehoshaphat. Jehoram leads Judah astray, and the kingdom crumbles in 2 Kings 8. 
Jehoram leads Judah astray, 2 Kings 8 again. Edom rebels against Judah. Elijah sends a letter to Jehoram, 2 Chronicles 21. Did you see that when yeah. we were reading? Yeah. Elijah sends a letter to Jehoram. He is alive at the same time Elijah, the most renowned of all the prophets, the man that characterized the prophets. He is alive at the same time. The Philistines and Arabians attack Jehoram in 21, and also he dies. God also tells Elijah to anoint Elisha, and Elisha follows him. And Elijah is taken into heaven during this king's life. So it's easy to say that his circumstances were setting him up for success. Yeah. And even though he had circumstances that he ought to have grown in, I mean, he had a great family. Look at all of their names that we just saw. Yeah. He had a great father who was a godly father. He was also alive during the most renowned and prolific prophets that have ever lived. Oh, wow. And look what kind of king he became. Wow. It reminds me a little bit of saying, you know, if only Judas had had a better pastor. Yeah. <laughs> if, if only Judas had had somebody teach him the word better. The problem really was Judas' upbringing. The problem was anything other than the man loved darkness, but called himself a believer. Yeah. The point is that Jehoram had all the godly counsel that he could want. Man, almost like this house. I mean, there's no shortage of godly counsel in here, is there? I mean, you could get amazing counsel from Pastor Matt, and then the next day you can go talk to... Elder Baj, and then the next day you could go talk to Pastor Wade or Elder Charlie, Elder John, Elder Eric, and you're going to get, I don't know, some combined 15, 20 years of, of experience there. I mean, more than that. <laughs> we've, we've got some amazing counsel, and so did Jehoram. He had all the provision he could want. He was in a community designed by God, and he was sired from a genuine man of God. A third party observer would think that Jehoram would be thankful for this kind of community that God had surrounded him with. You would think! You would think, right? He would be thankful. We'll consider these passages, and we're going to talk about thankfulness. Acts 28, verse 15. Assad, you read that. Steve Thomas, you get Colossians 1, 9 through 12. Paul Rosales, you get Philippians 1, 3 through 5. And Emmy, you get Revelation 4, 8 through 10. I love the fact that Paul held his elders meeting at a tavern. That in itself is amazing. But remember, he's on his way to die in Rome. I would say that's difficult circumstances. How's your week been going? But at the sight of the believing community that came out to see him, he was filled with gratitude and thanks. Amen. It swelled up in his heart. Have you ever considered the fact that you are not owed the people sitting around you? He's encouraged by the community of faith that surrounded him. The Apostle Paul, as close as he was to the Lord, was encouraged in his heart and thankful for those that came to support the work of God. Come on. Yeah. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm thankful for you. 
That's the first step in avoiding a deadly blowout. Colossians 1, 9 through 12. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, Come on. growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power and yeah. all his glorious might, Saints, I want you to pick up some of the words in this. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped. My translation goes on to say we continually ask God to fill you. Something of an urgency was kindled in him because of other men that were willing to stand for the gospel with him. Being surrounded by those who walk in the light ought to strengthen us. It should increase our endurance, our willingness to suffer for the gospel. Gives patience. Men like Baj have increased my patience over the years. It's been good discipleship. But most of all, it should cause us to be filled with a joyful thankfulness for what God has chosen to surround us with. When you find people who are dedicated to holiness and are not just Samaritans, it's worthy of a hallelujah. Hallelujah! Can we illustrate that for you one other way? Yes. The church is the kingdom of God on earth. It is the pillar and foundation of truth. And the church has the right and the obligation to discipline itself. The scripture makes that very clear. What is the harshest form of discipline that a church can ever do? It's deny you the right to sit next to somebody else who you should be thankful for. Oh, come on now. How many people inflict upon themselves the worst judgment that could be given? Too many. I got to tell you, very few people in the history of a church are thrown out of it. We might should amend that, but very few people are. Most do it to themselves. And the reason that they do is they do not want their darkness to be exposed. The greatest gift that God has given you, save being filled with the Holy Ghost, is that people are on your left and right that are committed to a kingdom coming upon the earth. Amen. And we should swell with thankfulness for that. Amen. You know what I kind of think? That if you're in this church and you have a blowout, you should be escorted right out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Philippians 1, 3 through 5. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Man, the apostle was filled with joy when he remembered those who were willing to partner with him in God's will. Do you remember where Paul is when he's writing this? He's in prison. You know, you take things for granted, but you realize how precious things are when you don't have them. Especially when you don't have your brothers on your left and your right. Now, you may think whatever you want about some people in this room. I'm going to tell you, it's not right. It's not godly. 
But the moment that you're without the brothers on your left and the right, oh, come on. no matter how much you have differences between each other, I'm going to tell you, when you're without them, you really start to miss them. Yeah. Yeah. And the truth is that if we are walking in God's light, it is a struggle. I mean, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And when you have someone else who is walking in the light, it doesn't matter if you agree on every doctrine of Scripture. It doesn't matter if, if they are socially weird or not. It doesn't matter any of those things. You are pretty darn thankful that you have someone to walk in the light together with. That is what binds us. That is what the kingdom of God produces, not just friends and acquaintances, but brothers in the light. Paul wasn't surrounded by perfect men, but he was overcome with joy, even remembering, thinking about them, just remembering, praying and seeing their faces. He was filled with joy that God had surrounded him with men that wanted to be perfected like he wanted to be perfected. So let's think through this for a minute. You slap somebody, and your brother says, I don't think that's a good idea. That's, that doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. And you're angry about that. Well, what would the alternative be? You stand in darkness where nobody sees it. You don't have the opportunity to have it pointed out, and you have no one to partner with you. See, Paul was overwhelmed with thankfulness. This sounds like a strange Baptist greeting card. Yeah. I thank my God every time I remember you. I mean, the first time I ever heard it, it was a little troll trying to pick up a girl in church. I don't think he's in the kingdom anymore. I'm not sure he was in the kingdom then, but he thought he was. The issue here is that you are thankful for anyone that is helping you be perfected because it's all of our goal, yes. and the truth is, is it takes all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I want you to hear how the heavens react to this kind of fellowship. It's Revelation 4, 8 through 10, whoever had that. Each of the four creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Wonder why they got those eyes. You think maybe they see things that are happening? Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, Verse 9 says they give thanks to him who sits on the throne. I want you to contemplate this for a minute. Because you hear these passages enough that after a while they can lose their original import. You're getting a view of the heavenly realm right here. A brother who wrote this down for you wanted you to know what he saw in the heavens. And one of the first things that he describes is even the heavenly creatures and the elders are full of thankfulness to be included in the assembly of the righteous. Now, they are in a perfected state and they're thankful for it. How much more should we be thankful that you're even allowed to sit in the community? Hallelujah! I, for one, am happy that y'all put up with me. (laughs) Moving on from there. What was their response? 
the response of the thankful community in the heavens is they laid their crowns at the feet of the holiness of God. Oh, come on. See, when you are genuinely thankful for what God has placed you in, you're happy to lay down self-rule. Oh, yeah. You're happy to lay down your rights. You are happy, period. You're not always disgruntled looking for something that would be easier or better. That's Samaria. And you don't want that kind of darkness in your life. When a man is contaminated by Samaritan darkness, when a man is being overcome by darkness, he doesn't express discontentment with God. Not at first. In fact, he more adamantly says how much he loves the Lord. What he does is he starts with the community that he's in and makes it about them rather than God. That's exactly what you're going to see Jehoram do in verse 4. Brother Linson, will you pick up in 4 for me? When Jehoram established himself firmly over his father's kingdom. Just pause there. Normally, when we're reading in Kings, we're reading in Chronicles, to hear that the king of Judah established himself firmly is a positive thing. That, that means things are rolling in the right direction. Right. Consider what he does as he's firmly established. His brother Linton finishes that verse. He put all his brothers to the sword along with some of the princes of Israel. Mm. This is the first time that in the kingdom of Judah something like this has been recorded. The first sign that something was very, very wrong in the heart of Jehoram was his behavior towards his brothers. Yeah. It's the first place that it shows up. We're four verses into the text. While this is the first time in Judah that this has occurred, it was not the first time that this had occurred among the people of God. Gideon was a man of God with 70 sons, and a very similar situation transpired after his day and time. I want to look at Judges 9, 1 through 6 with you guys. Who's going to read that? I I will. Read it. Says this Abimelech, son of Jerubel, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all seventy of Jerubel's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers when the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to fault Abimelech, for they, for they said, He is our brother. They gave him seventy shekels of silver from the temple of baal Bareth, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and, one of, and on one stone murdered his seventy brothers, the sons of Jerubel. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubel, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar of Shechem to crown Abimelech king. Man, everybody say that's a dark situation. That's a dark dark situation. situation. You know, you see a convincing argument there by Abimelech. Not convincing to us, but obviously they bought it. You know what you didn't hear him say? You didn't hear him say that he had a problem with God. You didn't hear him say, well, I'm not right with God. I'm sure, in fact, he presented it in a situation. I'm sure he presented himself in the light as saying that he's right with God. And you know who didn't say that either? 
Cain did not say that he had a problem with God either. Cain, Abimelech, in, in fact, Cain was offering sacrifices when he was contemplating murdering his brother. Cain, Abimelech, and Jehoram all act as if they are doing fine with God while they are murderous toward the believing community that was gifted by God to them. Sure, I'm fine with God, and yet harboring bitterness and hatred towards the brothers. This is the first indicator in a man's life that he has an incredible problem with God. Say incredible problem. Incredible problem. He isn't grateful for the men around him and seeks to tear them down to avoid the light exposing his own nature. You know what it was like whenever you first came to LCM. You were just thankful that you weren't the only one anymore. You had brothers by your side. Well, how do we get to the place where we are harboring hatred, slander, accusations, resentment towards other brothers? Well, you were always there. You just didn't know it because there was nobody to expose it. See, the family in Judges 9 is the pretext to murder his family. See, we're flesh and blood. That's why when you choose me, I'm going to kill my flesh and blood. Shouldn't they have spotted this duplicity? (laughs) See, when you agree to be a believing community, but you are not exposing the darkness in each other, this is what happens. Everybody dies. You have a terrible blowout. (laughs) Hey, what's 1 John 3 say? Verse 12 through 15. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Mm. If you just cannot live with somebody in this community, if you could not share a room with somebody in this community, then how are you going to share eternity with God? Cain was offering sacrifices. Cain was having conversations with God Almighty. Cain was in the believing community. The truth is that Cain's actions towards Abel were only a response to the darkness that Cain was living in. Cain's actions were evil before he killed Abel. He's not evil after he kills Abel. He's evil while he's offering sacrifices. He's evil while he's talking with God. Oh, come on. But he keeps on sacrificing, and he's still in the community. Because... Nobody likes to cover wickedness with a banner that says wickedness. We do it by saying that we're just hearing from God. We do it by saying we just want to accomplish something for God. In other words, we sew together fig leaves. Yeah, think through that for a minute. Because the first real indicator that Cain was in darkness was the way that he felt about his brother. You have no indication that he has a problem with God until after he kills his brother. See, this will make you think through how you view every person in this room. Because they are a gift from God to you. 
Amen. I'm going to hand out a few verses. Nick, Arjuna, if you would help me out with 1 John 4, 19 through 21. Yes. Nolan, if you would get Matthew 12, 48 through 50. Adam, Matthew 5, 22 through 24. That'll round us out. Nick, First right. John, when you're ready. First John 4, 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. Mm. Mm. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I love how we worked our way through the Gospel of John and are now in epistles that John wrote. In the prior section, we just read that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. John goes on and he lets us know that it is not possible to be dwelling both in the light and in the darkness, to both love God and hate your brother. It's not possible for us to have a little of both and be all right. That it's one or the other. It's a line in the sand that says, either you relate to my sons rightly or you don't relate to me at all. But I don't hate them. I just don't like them. I don't like what they do. They annoy me. They keep the house too cold. You know, I just really don't like this brother's personal convictions. They grade on my soul. And, you know, I don't think they're actually that biblical. You know, hate is a pretty strong word in our kind of language. We have things like hate speech, whatever that means. We have hate crimes that are saying something truthful out in public. We live in a day where hate has become the worst possible thing that you could ever be. It would be better to be a serial killer than to hate someone. Yet Psalm 45 says that we are to hate what is wicked. Now, the word hate in this kind of context is something that we need to evaluate on a practical and biblical level. Do you find yourself complaining about your brothers in this community? I don't hate them. I just don't like this, this, and this. Do you grumble about them to yourself or to your wife? Are you fault-finding with them? And for whatever reason, you would just have trouble not finding flaws in them every time that you talk. This could be the first indicator that you have a tremendous problem in your heart called sin and hatred with another label on it. In all actuality, it's a problem between you and God that is showing up on a peer level. Darkness is a deceptive thing. It never shows up and says, hey, I'm darkness. It just slowly dims your vision, clouds your judgment, steals, kills, and destroys your very life in the community that God has put you in. You know, we've noticed being a pastor's kid for a long time, reputations are often murdered before bodies actually hit the floor. We have Samaritans who slay through slander, little words, little lies that start to build up that are actually killing men's character when nothing of the sort ever happens. As Nehemiah says, you're making it up out of your own mind. It'd be more accurate to say your sinful Samaritan mind. Our God is calling us to live in the light. We're going to first and foremost do that by recognizing the men on our left and right and being in right alignment there and then coming to the Lord. Who is Matthew 12? Matthew 12, 48 through 50. He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? 
pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You know, I think everybody in this room ought to take this scripture, write it down on a card, put it as the background of your phone, whatever you have to do, update your Facebook status with this passage, whatever you have to do to remember it, because this passage has saved many from the family kind of entanglement that we do not need to be getting into, Samaritan entanglements. But you know, one thing I notice, it is in our nature when we're in the darkness to shed ourselves from any responsibility from loving our brother or our neighbor. I mean, how many times do you see the Pharisees going to Jesus and saying like, uh, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? Right? Can't be that guy. I don't like him very much. He's not really, you know, there are people in this room that I feel like are more my brothers, and I don't really fellowship. No. The answer is right here in this passage. If a man or a woman is attempting with all their heart to do the will of the Father, then they are your brother. Come on. That is the prerequisite. If they are trying to do the will of God, doesn't matter how flawed, doesn't matter how stupid, like myself, doesn't matter how socially dense, like myself, slow and maturing, like myself, or difficult to love, I'm still your brother. Amen. Because the one thing that I want to do is do the will of God, no matter how many times I may end up in darkness, but I am trying to get back in the light. Amen. Still your brother. Amen. Samaritan darkness shows up first in your actions toward the believing community around you. Now I want to say this. I want you to catch this. It shows up in your actions towards the believing community, especially the perceived weaker ones. Because the perceived weaker ones, you really feel like you have an excuse, right? I mean, they are just doing the same thing. I keep telling them they don't learn. So I could kind of harbor this bitterness about them, which is really not about them. It's about my own state. Especially the weaker ones. They show you how this darkness is in your actions. Thankfulness for the believing community or lack thereof is a litmus test for your condition. Thank God tonight we're realizing how much we need each other. Yeah. Hallelujah! How thankful are you for your brothers? Yeah. Hey, let's do Matthew 5, 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Rekah, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Does that not scare you? Yes. It scares me. Deeply. Keep yeah. going. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, mm. leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, I know, you knew what this verse said before we got there, so you're sure you know what it means. <laughs> Let me put it in a little different light for you. We also know that the Bible says, draw near to God, or if you're a King Jimmy fan, draw nigh thee, and he will draw nigh thee to you. If you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. That sounds great, doesn't it? So individualistic, though, because it's not true, not in isolation. The truth is, is that if you will not reconcile with the brother who is a brother because he does the will of God, then God will not let you draw near to him. You have to get up and leave the altar and go get that right. Say, well, that guy's not my brother. 
says every man who is committed to darkness. The litmus test is, is that person committed to doing the will of God? Or have they committed themselves to running into darkness? See, that is the issue at hand. If you're in this room tonight, I have to assume that we are legitimately brothers because you wouldn't be here if you didn't want to go after the will of God. Now, if we hurt your feelings and you leave, then it becomes suspect. Okay? But we still have to deal with that. Is this person just confused? Are they just straying? Or have they identified an area of darkness in their life they're committed to keeping and they will do anything to avoid its continued exposure? You cannot draw near to, walk through the tabernacle, You cannot draw near to God without first having a right relationship with your brothers. God places that requirement on us for drawing near to Him. I mean, this verse says it plainly. Jeroboam's downfall. Somebody say downfall. Downfall. It's written in his actions towards his brothers before it ever happened. As soon as you see the way that he acts towards his brothers, you don't have to read the rest of the passage. You know that his life is going to end in a terrible blowout. (laughs) You know it because that is how it's begun. His hatred towards God will manifest over time. It always starts with how you feel about the people sitting around you. Is there envy? Is there rivalry? It's their selfish ambition. Do you hate the way that when that guy's around, you feel diminished? Those are murderous thoughts. And it says something about how we feel about God. It's just easier for us to express them about people. Let's pick up in verse 5. Jerome was 32 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. As the house of Ahab had done. For he married the daughter of Ahab. He did evil things. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I know every one of you walked in here with the names completely straight, and you understand the lineages of both houses, and you could do it from memory. But just in case, it was only us that were struggling a little bit with nailing down all of the names. We have a slide for you that we'd like to review. We actually have several slides for you. All right, now. We're looking at Jehoram's line. He is the son of Jehoshaphat. If you look up here, top left-hand corner, we go Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat. You see each of his sons. Jehoram descends from Jehoshaphat. And then he has two sons, one named Azahiah and the other Uzziah. We have another slide as we keep working through this with you. So the next slide is the line of Ahab. This is the northern king. At the same time, the king of Israel, the Samaritan dark king. So we have Omri and Ethbaal. They have Ahab. I'm sorry, Ethbaal is the uh, father of Jezebel. Omri is the father of Ahab. And they together, Ahab and Jezebel, have Athaliah. They have Jehoram and another son named Ahaziah. (laughs) This is the line of Ahab. And some Bibles use alternate spellings to help you make a distinction. Did you notice that there is... Sons of Ahab named Jehoram, just like their sons of Jehoshaphat named Jehoram. Well, check out the next slide. The whole chapter tonight is illustrating what happens with a destructive marriage, which is our next slide. 
What happens is Ahab's line, which is on the left side of the screen, produces a real wench. I mean, just a terrible hag of an ogrely, beastly lady named Athaliah. She marries Jehoram. So we have a merger between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And this gets crazy because so many of the names are similar. We're going to help you with that because we know that you don't have as much familiarity with these names and their similarity makes it difficult. Our next slide is called Confusingly Fashionable Names. The first one that I want to point out to you is that Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, has got the same name as Ahab's son, Jehoram. Now, Bibles have tried to help us, and some of them have made the Jehoram under Ahab, Joram. But it's the same Hebrew word. And just to make sure that no Bible was outdone by another Bible, some of them reversed the process, and they made Jehoshaphat's son, Joram, instead of Jehoram. Because of that, we wanted you to see this on a slide. Notice that this means that there's two sons in the dynasty that have the exact same name. Watch where this goes. Our next slide, also confusingly fashionable names. When you look at this, notice that Jehoram, king of Judah, named his son Azahiah, which is the name of Jehoram, king of Judah's brother-in-law, on his wife's side. So Ahab has a son named Jehoram, and that Jehoram has a sister named, I'm sorry, a brother named Azahiah. Well, the Jehoram on the southern kingdom side has a son, and he names him Azahiah. This is beginning to look a little bit like a family reunion in the south. This is my brother Bob, my other brother Billy Bob, my sister Jesha Bob, you know. Susie Bob. Oh, Susie Bob. It gets even better. Are you ready for it? Azahiah, that is the brother of Athaliah and in Ahab's line, has essentially the same name as Azariah, as Azarihu, and as Azahiah the son of Jehoram. Wow. So let me read it to you like this. This means that Jehoram had a brother-in-law named Azahiah. He had a brother named Azariah. He had another brother named Azarihu. If all of that is not difficult enough, Azahiah is also the name of Jehoram's son. This means Azahiah, the king of Judah, had three uncles with essentially the same name as his. I knew y'all worked all this out ahead of time. What do you pastors do all day? (laughs) This confusing similarity between names that apparently had become pretty fashionable during this time reminded me of James 4 because these kingdoms are not supposed to have anything to do with each other. Who would like to read James 4 and verse 4? Get it, Tisdale. Saints, if you've been coming to Mondays for a while, you know this is a well-trodden path for us. Our goal tonight is not to teach you on every area of this, but each of us should be sensitive to at least 
two profound truths. Somebody say two, two. profound, profound. Truths. truths. Number one, the worldly will imitate godly names, godly appearances, and activities to look as if they are right with God. Yeah. Number two, those who are in right standing with God must guard themselves and their families from imitating anything in the lives of those who are not right with God. Come on, think about that for a minute. If the Samaritan kingdom calls on the name of the same God, if the Samaritan kingdom has a place of worship, if the Samaritan kingdom has priests, if the Samaritan kingdom essentially looks like a slightly revised version of the southern kingdom, then all, aren't they all essentially on the same footing? No. The only reason the Samaritan kingdom has those things is to avoid the exposure of darkness in their lives. But the southern kingdom, if they're imitating those kind of names, those kind of practices, aren't they also muddying the waters? We're going to have to work to be distinct. Rather than argue about which is happening here, whether the chicken came first or the egg came first, let's focus on making clear the distinction between those who are right with God and those who are not right with God, regardless of the words coming out of their mouth. You ought to be catching some of this in your own relations around holiday time, right? Because everybody talks about Jesus at Christmas. Everybody talks about thankfulness at Thanksgiving. But how do they live the other 364 days a year? And shouldn't there be some distinction between those who actually walk with God and those who pretend to? And shouldn't you work to make sure that that distinction is clear for everybody to see? Well, we're living in a time period in Israel's history where the lines got blurred. Can I hand you a few scriptures? Yes. Micaiah, I'm so glad you wanted to read. Read Exodus 11 and verse 7. Josiah, it's good to see you're with us. Leviticus 20 and verse 5. Megan, take Malachi 3 and verse 18. Who did I give it to? Josiah. Josiah, I apparently told you a wrong verse. It's Leviticus 20 and verse 25. I'm still driving darkness out of me, brother, but there will not be a terrible blowout. God willing. One can never be sure. Some things you cannot trust. We depend upon the Lord. Exodus 11. I like the NIV translation. It says, but among the Israelites, not a dog will bark. This is when God is telling them what's going to happen during the Exodus, before judges are coming down. And he's saying, look, if you stay in the place I told you to stay, there will be a distinction. Not even the dogs will bark at you guys. Wow. Where they lived made a difference. And how they lived made a difference. It was the distinction between who was going to be judged and who was not judged. Where we live, and more importantly, how we live, 
must be distinct from the ungodly. You may have to live in the same place, but you do not have to live in the same way. Amen. Amen. Let's go to Leviticus 20, 25. <coughs> Josiah, that's you. I, re- I realize what happened here. It's very much like the lines of Ahab and the lines of Jehoshaphat. We got more than one Josiah in the room. Just like we got more than one Justin in the room. You're going to see these fashionable names cause confusion. But we're going to make a clear line of distinction. We'll say the handsome Josiah. No, that doesn't work either. We'll go with the shorter of the two Josiahs. You did good, Josiah. Look, the point of this dietary separation here is that what we enjoy, and more importantly, how we enjoy what we enjoy, must be distinct from the ungodly. Say, oh, well, I just don't eat those kind of foods. Well, that is one way to do it. Of course, you've now made the kingdom of God about food and drink. I would rather say that how you enjoy it is the distinction, not what you enjoy. This keeps us from trying to enforce strange preferences. One guy likes salt and another guy doesn't like salt. One likes bricks and another doesn't. How we enjoy, how we build, it makes all of the difference. These are where the lines of distinction can be. You can't change the fact that somebody else lives next door to you, but you can change how you live. You can't change the fact that somebody else abuses a firearm, but you can handle it rightly. How we live makes the distinction. Malachi 3.18 And I love the prophets. They warn our soul. They guide us. And they also let us know about what will happen in the future. For Malachi to be saying yet again, you will see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, must mean that in his present day he wasn't seeing it. A little bit like our day. Since the first day of creation, God has been dividing the light and the darkness, separating them, creating a distinction, separating waters that were deep and dark, and causing dry land to come upon the ground. Now, in our own lives, he wants to divide what is light and what is dark. Chaos, these things that have surrounded our lives, are constantly trying to mix the two. The reality is everyone's sinful nature in this room would like to have a little blend, just enough to feel comfortable on both sides of the aisle. And God is calling for a distinction among his people. From the first day of our new creation. We have to learn to make the same distinction by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of holiness will show you how to stand in the light. It will lead you to the Word of God that will guide your feet. Now, ideally, the community of God. Hear me. Ideally, the community of God. Somebody say ideally. Ideally. Should aid you in this endeavor. If everyone in the community is concerned about your behavior then you would be wise to deeply reflect on that behavior. On the other hand, 
If everybody in the community is approving of your behavior, you must still make sure that God actually approves of it. So then, the community of God is an aid and not a replacement for God's approval in our life. It is a cherished, joyful support that we ought to rejoice over. And that does not alleviate any man's responsibility to be distinct from darkness and his own life. Because two men might need to be distinct by handling the very same substance differently. Because their God requires it of them based on the darkness in those men. Hey, what's verse 7? Now, hold on. (laughs) They're loose. Man, times are bad in Israel, aren't they? Times are bad in Judah. Yeah. In this chapter, aren't they? Yeah. But say that word again. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. See, God has not left himself without witness here. Keep reading, brother. Because of the covenant the Lord had made with David, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. Praise God. He had promised to maintain a lamp for him and his descendants. Oh, come on. Say it with me, church. Forever. 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 Look, God's word is God's promise. It is written in God's word that he would always maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. It is written in God's word. God spoke it. The prophet spoke it. It is God's word, and it should be taken as a promise that cannot be abolished forever. No matter how much time has passed, no matter how wicked these kings get, it is God's word. And God's word is trustworthy, isn't it? You could take it to the bank if God spoke it, right? Let's illustrate a difference for you. My little Abby might look at me and say, do you love me? Yes, Abby, I love you. Do you promise you love me? Yes, Abby, I promise I love you. And by the way, Daddy's telling the truth when he says that. A little boy may not be. You should know that. (laughs) The reason that we have to make that distinction is because we mean some things more than we mean other things, which is a way of saying we may not have been telling the truth all of the time. Every word that comes from God's mouth is perfect. And when he says a lamp for the house of David and his descendants, he doesn't just mean that there will be a Messiah that comes from the house of David. The lamp has to also benefit the descendants of David. Every word is flawless. Every word is perfect. Can we hand out a few scriptures? Yes. All right. Uh, Steve Thomas, you get Genesis 15, 12 through 17. Spence, you get 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 4. Paul, you get Psalm 8, Paul Rosales. You get Psalm 18, 28 through 29. Paul, Paul McEwitt, was the kingdom of Judah. <laughs> <laughs> Paul McEwick, you get Psalm 119, verse 105. Through 107. Josiah, tall Josiah. You read Psalm 132, verse 16 through 18. Timo, you get Psalm 89, 29 through 37. JJ, Matthew 6, 22 through 23. 
Nick Rosales, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 12. Micaiah, Revelation 4, 5. Rick, Revelation 22, verse 5. <laughs> now, as y'all were turning there, I rudely interrupted Justin. Darkness is still being driven out of me. But we are not going to have a blowout. All right, Genesis 15, 12 through 17. When God says, <laughs> forever, that settles it. When God says it, that settles it. Bad behavior brings discipline. But Israel can never be disinherited or destroyed. Yes. The scripture plainly says that. Never. God didn't say something and then later amend it, even if theologians do. God does not. That is our theme in this scripture string, plus how it, meet, how it affects you. Amen. Amen. Genesis 15, 12 through 17. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set, and darkness had fallen. A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Man, the lamp of God appeared while Abram was sleeping. Yeah. He wasn't doing anything. He wasn't there to confirm the covenant. He didn't have anything to add to the covenant. He was sleeping. Or you could say he was in the midst of darkness. This covenant depends on God's promise. It was started with God's promise. It was not dependent upon Abraham's performance. He was not doing anything. In fact, God put him in the deep sleep to ensure that he knew that this promise depended on what he spoke and nothing else. This is a matter of God's word being held right and true. Just and true are your ways and your laws. May every man be a liar and God be true. It is based on his word and Abraham did nothing. Bad behavior would bring discipline, but the promise would never be disavowed or destroyed. Come on. Over the years yeah. of Israel's history, there is bad behavior and darkness, but because God made a promise, He cannot disavow or disinherit His promise. Amen. He can't do that. First Samuel 3, verse 1 through 4. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. That ought to cause rejoicing yeah. all over the room. Yeah. Come on. In this passage, notice... Samuel is sleeping, but the lamp of God is still burning. Amen. Come on. Amen. God is able to discipline the house of Eli. 
while he is raising up Samuel to save the rest of Israel. God disciplines, but he does not destroy. His promise was unconditional. The promise was not based on performance. It was based on God's faithfulness. Come on. I want you to extrapolate then. What does that mean for you? If you are alive, if you're in this room, and I hope none of you are dead while you're in this room, then your lamp has not yet gone out. That means even if you were sleeping and missed the memo, even if there is darkness in you that you are having to fight against, the lamp of God hasn't gone out. There's hope for transformation. You can and will overcome. That is what the community of faith is actually about. Psalm 18, 28 through 29. You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against the truth. Man, I love this. You can finish it. I can scale the wall. Who is it that's keeping the lamp ablaze? The Lord! The Lord is keeping His lamp burning. Not smoldering, burning. The man says here, my darkness. Saints, we need to recognize this simple truth. The old man does need to die. And he is the old man. But he is your old man. He is your (laughs) sinful nature. (laughs) We have to stand recognizing that the only reason you still have a lamp, you still have a hope, is that God has sustained it thus far. If he intended to extinguish it, if he was looking to kill you, he would have done it a long time ago. But he's kept it alive. What happens here is the psalmist says, my darkness becomes light. When we recognize the old man, the darkness, the Samaria, the Ahab that is at work in our own life, and we say, Almighty God, the one who's kept this flame ablaze inside of me, turn it to light. He does, and it has a result. It does something in our lives. We are then able to advance against a truth. We are able to scale the wall. We are able to accomplish the great exploits that God destined you for. God is able to turn my darkness into light. He's not able to turn your neighbors into light when you're blaming it on Him. Your personal darkness that you take responsibility for, you have transformational power over in Christ. The lamp has not gone out. There is hope for transformation. But there is no continued future without that transformation. Praise God we have access to it. One of the ways that Solomon said this in the book of Ecclesiastes is it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. If you have already passed into eternal darkness, then there's no hope for you. But if you're alive then there is still hope you'll be transformed. You have to own your own darkness, though, so it can be transformed. This is why the psalmist says, the Lord has kept my lamp burning. My darkness, he calls it. If you can own that area, then you have the right to put it to death and the Lord will help you do it. If you're blaming it on everybody else, you do not have the chance to be transformed. I don't want you to identify with darkness. 
You don't want to identify with darkness. Amen. But it would be better to own it and kill it than it yeah. is to transfer it and blame someone else while it still lives within you. That's true. The community of God helps us see where darkness lives in us, but it also <coughs> reminds us the lamp of God has not gone out. Yeah. There is hope for you. This makes correction look like this. Brother, I see this in your life, and I'm concerned for you. It or something like it was also in my life, but the lamp of God is helping me to overcome it, and He will help you too. If somebody doesn't want that, then they do not belong in the community of God. They're not with us while they're sitting here. They're destined for a posterior explosion that is going to be embarrassing. It's just a matter of time. What's Psalm 119? Psalm 119, verses 105 to 107. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Man, what did he say the lamp is? What did he call the lamp to his feet? Your word. The word of God is the lamp to this psalmist's feet. The word of God is a bright... Can we just elevate the word for a second? The word of God is a bright burning lamp. No matter how much you read it, no matter how much you use it, whether you haven't picked up your Bible in a week, it is still a bright burning lamp that can never go out. But if you get into that word, right, you heard this all before. We preach about it all the time, but can you listen to me for a second? Yeah. If you just get into the word of God, it will be a lamp for your feet. Come on. The problem becomes, we know that the lamp, the, the word is always a bright and shining lamp. The problem becomes is when we try to push out the word in every area of our lives. When someone's bringing a correction from the word and say, I don't want to hear that. When you're sitting here in service and the word is being preached and you're tuning out, that is how your light starts to diminish. But know something that that lamp is always burning. If you're sitting in darkness, you always have it. If you're here in this room right now, you have a lamp for your feet. You can even suffer much and it will preserve your life according to that word. The word is a promise. You ever hear a sleazy salesman tell you, well, to be honest with you, well, quite frankly, what have you been with me this whole time? You don't have to worry about the Word of God in that sense. You can actually read it and believe everything it says. But we don't often read it like that, do we? When you take every word as gold gospel truth that it is powerful and effective in your life, it will be a promise to you and you can live by that. The Word is the only light for your path to transformation. Do you want to be transformed? Yes! One of the things that God has put in our lives to help so that we know where we applied the word, so that we know how to light our path, is you remember the stupid brother we talked about earlier, the socially dense brother, the one that was slow to mature, the weak brother. In other words, anybody in your own estimation other than you. Oh, wow. <laughs> Why do you feel about them like you do? Why do they annoy you the way they do? 
Why do you want to get away from them? Why could you not share a room? Why is there a problem? Because you have a problem in you. And the Word is shining a light on it. The problem is not with your brother. The problem is with you. And the solution to get away from your brothers doesn't fix you. It just allows you to hide in darkness. You're fearing exposure. Well, I just don't know if I can be around that brother. Then you, my friend, have a problem. That's the issue. We should desire to be around those that help highlight where we must grow. The Word will transform you. Have faith in the Word of God working inside of you. It's a lamp for your feet. It's not so that you can show your brother how he should walk. It's for your feet. Hey, what is Psalm 132 verse 16? His crown will shine. One translation says will be resplendent. Mm. See, Israel's priest and you crazy mysterious graftins, (laughs) you will be clothed with salvation. This scripture declares that you will sing with joy. Why not practice now? Amen, Peyton? You will be crowned with splendor. The lamp of God has not gone out for David, for his descendants, or for you. And it's why we harp on the unconditional promise to the house of David. If it has condition, then you have no hope. It's true. It's true. Psalm 89 is going to take this concept further. Who has it? Speaking about an earthly man and his family, he says, I will establish his line forever as long as the heavens endure. He's comparing something that is beyond our realm and is filled with things that do not die like we do, saying that kind of forever, the eternal, immortal kind of forever. In other words, exactly what I mean by forever with no exceptions. Keep reading. Wow, we haven't seen a king of Judah forsake his law yet, have we? Keep reading. Pause, Timothy. We are describing the descendants that would come and that when there was violations, that there would be punishments. We're about to see some of the most extraordinary of those punishments this evening. But notice the next verse, despite the extreme blowout that we're going to see in just a little while, that he's promising this man that when your sons sin, when they violate these things, if they do not hold to the commands... I will discipline them as sons in my house. Amen. Keep reading. But I will not take my life from them. Nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. Whose faithfulness? His. It's God's faithfulness. He ties his very name and faithfulness to the house of David. Keep reading, Timothy. I will not violate my covenant. Whose covenant is it? The Lord's. It's not David's. It belongs to God. Keep going. 
Come on. <laughs> That's quite a lamp. Yeah. Keep yeah, going. God's word is a promise. When he speaks it, it will come to pass and it will happen. He compares the heavens in the first verse that we read and then again the stellar realm in the end to let you know what kind of promise he made. One that he would not back up from, that would not go away. In fact, he even compares the sun here in a way to the kind of lamp that would be for David's house. Which of you can darken the sun by your own will? And all of man's great exploration, our great increases, we still do not understand the stars and the sun and the moon that God set in place by His will and by His might. By the same kind of power, He set in place the Davidic covenant. The God who organized the cosmos has David's line in His hand. He said that He would chastise, that He would discipline But their lamp will not go out. It will never go out. It cannot go out. And those of us who found our refuge in the son of David have an equally secure promise. One that will drive out the darkness no matter what it is. When we take it as our own and we say, Son of David, have mercy on me and help me become something more. He will do so. Matthew 6, 22. See, this all has to do with what you set your eye on. If you're setting your eye on the lamp of God, you will have the lamp of God burning inside of you. If you set your eyes on darkness, hating your brothers, doing all kinds of Samaritan wicked things, then your whole body will be full of darkness. The, The truth about this is, is that no man can serve two masters. It's not possible to be full of darkness and also say that you're full of light. It's not possible to have your eyes set on dark things and say that your eyes set on the light, the lamp of God. Be careful what you set your eyes on. And I'm not just talking about what you physically look at. Be careful what you set everything, your being, what you think about, what you start to do and think about. Be careful. Your eyes should be set on God's word and God's promises. Come on. Yes. When your eyes are set on those things, you have a burning lamp inside of you. This brings the abundant life to your whole existence. And quite frankly, you know what it does? It puts a big old smile on your face and you are Amen. Come on. When you've got that lamp of God burning inside of you, it doesn't matter what kind of dark things are going on around you. You are full of abundant life. Who's got 2 Corinthians 4, 6-12? For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge. Of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Hey, who makes the light shine out of darkness? God. See, he does it during times of darkness in the kingdom of Judah. But he also does it in times of darkness in your life. Oh, yeah. This is the hope of transformation. It's why we don't fear darkness and it doesn't overcome us. God will make his light shine out of your darkness. He will transform you. That's the hope of Christianity. Come on. Pick up in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this is all surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's from God and who is it not from? Us. See, it didn't originate with you. 
It doesn't depend on you. All you have to do is trust in the Word of God and it will do the transformation. Come on. Verse 8. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For he who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This is a long scripture string, but it is worth getting this right. The circumstances of the kingdom of Judah's discipline, they do not overshadow the lamp of God's promise. And aren't you glad? Yes! Your difficulties do not overshadow the lamp of God's promise. It's not too late to repent. Maintaining the lamp of God's word, it's everything. You must cling to God's promise of transformation so that you have the courage to face darkness that is within you and confront the darkness that is outside of you. Oh, come on. Both are important and they both stem from the Word of God. Who had Revelation 4 and verse 5? I did. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We have seven blazing torches or lamps. They are not smoldering. They're blazing. There's seven of them in a perfect number that are by the throne room of the living God. Saints, our God has all of the light that we need. It is our job to maintain it. It's our job to bring that light into our own darkness. In the book of Revelation, there was a lampstand for each of the churches. The question was, how much of the light were they willing to live in? Saints, tonight we want to live in all of the light. We fuel the faith that we live in by approaching the throne room of God, by pressing into the light of God, by becoming more like Him. You want faith to move mountains? You want faith that will not quit, that will not break? Drag yourself into the light of God and get closer to His throne room. His promise, His Word, His Spirit is not flickering. It's not diminishing. It is more than enough. It is a blaze. We just need to be consumed by zeal for His house. I can feel the fire inside of me that I want to be inside of some of you. His Spirit will consume you. Where His light is something that men can see from a distance before you open your mouth. We must tend to that lamp. It is what we need. It is our hope. Fan into flame the fire that He already placed inside of your heart. Let it grow into a blazing boldness. One that is the very character of God being displayed in you. This is the nature of His promise for those of us that trust in Him. We're not made to be smoldering. You are made to be a man that is set on fire for the world to see. Amen. Before we get to our last scripture in this stream, let's recap something. The Word of God is a lamp for you. But so is the Spirit of God. You're blessed with both of those things that co-witness and they drive darkness out of you so that you are not overcome by the darkness you know you have but are being transformed out of. This is why the tabernacle starts in repentance. It doesn't end in repentance. Our church services tend to start with wonderful feelings about the Lord and end in repentance. 
The pathway to the Lord is owning the darkness that you know that you have so that you can execute it. If we will maintain the flame of God, the lamp of God, there is a day coming when you will not have to maintain it. That's Revelation 22 and verse 5. Who's got that? And there will no longer be any light any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. There will be no more night. Hallelujah! Your battle with darkness is temporary. Your victory will be eternal. That lamp is blazing and it will win. You must maintain that lamp now by keeping your eyes on it. That light does not come from you, as the last passages have said. That light comes from God, but you must maintain your connection with the lamp. The Lord will maintain it throughout eternity. Right now in this time while we are in the night, you maintain that lamp burning in you by staying close to the fire of God's word. By staying close to the fire of God's spirit. You do that for this short time, this temporal time now, God will do it for you for eternity if you do that. Just like David's house will reign forever and ever. And guess how many stumblings they had in darkness. It's because God's lamp has always been blazing for them. So will, so will those of faith of David in the house of David's son. That lamp will blaze for them forever. And those of us who have the same faith in the son of David, we will be in that house forever because we are maintaining that lamp of God. Are you all still with us? Yes. yes. You didn't have a Jehoram kind of blowout, did you? No. Would you all like to pick up the pace? Let's go to verse 8. He's on rebellion against Judah and set up its own king. So Jehoram went there with his officers and all his chariots. The Edomites surrounded him with the chariot commanders, but he rose up and broke, broke fire through the night. To this day, Edom has been in rebellion against Judah, lifting and revolted at the same time, because Jehoram had forsaken the Lord, the God of his fathers. He had also built the high places on the hills of Judah and had caused the people of Jerusalem to It'd be so easy to relegate this language to a metaphor. We're not going to go into the specifics tonight, but you may remember this little teaching called Celestial Powers, where we talked about the reality of actual archons ruling over nations. These are real spiritual entities. And these adulteries, they can be viewed quite literally. In fact, Leviticus 20 and verse 5 says this, I myself will set my face against him and his family and will cut them off from their people together with all who follow them in prostituting themselves to Molech. See, as we move forward towards Elijah's letter, this is a little reminder. You might go and look at your notes on Leviticus 20. You might also compare them with Numbers 25 so that you don't let somebody else's unfaithfulness turn you into a prison bride. What's verse 12? Jerome received a letter from Elijah the prophet and said, This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, said. You have not walked in the ways of your father Jehoshaphat or of of Asa, king of Judah. Now notice that Elijah calls Yahweh the God of your father David. Once again, his name, his reputation is interwoven with David. 
God made an everlasting promise to David that is fulfilled in Jesus, the son of David. That's not all that he said. It would have been good for Joram if he was like Jehoshaphat or if he was like Asa, his father and grandfather, flesh and blood examples that he could see and not just read stories about, his actual ancestors. But it would have been best if he was like David. Amen! Elijah seems to know that what God was after was men that had a heart like David. I think he still is in this room. Yeah. At least in Jehoram's life, if he could have done as good as the previous generation, we wouldn't be in this setting. One more note before we move on from a commentator named Will Cox. Will Cox. Will Cox. Will Cox. The letter from Elijah is not found in Kings and is surprising. Elijah was not a writing prophet. What they mean by that is his words are not recorded in a book called Elijah, like Asa, or like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Nor did he often prophesy to the south. Yet the letter does address a very northern-like situation in the southern kingdom. You remember the reference we made in the first few verses. The southern kingdom has become enough like the north that we have a prophet that almost only addresses the northern kingdom writing a letter because of their wicked behavior. Verse 13, Linton. But you have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and you have led Judah and the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves, just as the house of Ahab did. You have also murdered your own brothers, members of your father's house, men who were better than you. Better than you. So now the Lord is about to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and everything that is yours with a heavy blow. You yourself will be very ill with a lingering disease of the bowels <laughs> until the disease causes your bowels to come out. Wow. Man, talk about a royal pain in the <clears throat> past. <laughs> this is very much in the present. Elijah's I would letter. say a dead sinner. <laughs> Did I say a dead sinner? Oh. Oh, about a hole in one. Elijah's letter can be summarized as you have sinned so you will suffer. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Darkness was seeping out of his sinister heart oh, in soiling ways. Wow. That's right. Reverend Atmos style. Right there. I got a word. <laughs> Burning. Armageddon. He not only turned away from the Lord, but he killed those who may have been faithful. These were brothers who had incredible names, and they might have been faithful to the promise of David. See, the men he killed would have been better than him, which is why he killed them. He also led the survivors into prison bride prostitution, the same way he positioned or propositioned himself. He caused God's wrath on God's people. His sons, wives, and everything that was his suffered including his bowels. Remember, this is occurring at the end of Elijah's ministry and during the ministry of Elisha. The exact chronology is something of a humorous debate, and we want to show you a slide from Rashi. Look on this slide. What you're seeing is the Masoretic text. Then a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, So said the Lord, the God of David your father, because you did not go in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father and in the ways of Asa the king of Judah. Rashi's commentary says, And the letter came to him from Elijah. 
after he had ascended to heaven. The prophetic letter came to him. Look, whether Elijah sent the letter after he was translated, during his translation, or before is beyond the scope of our evening. It would have required more prayer and discernment than we have. Suffice it to say, God is pretty serious about correcting the southern kingdom because his name is wrapped up in it. So the letter got there. Whether Elijah wrote the letter prior to his death and had it sent because he knew it would happen, or he was literally in the chariot of fire writing the letter, (laughs) or he's using a heavenly tablet and emailing it, it's beside the point. It's the only letter that we have from Elijah, and it's the only time Elijah or Elisha took the time to address a southern king because he was acting like the northern kingdom. Let's go to verse 16. The Lord aroused against Jer- Jer- Jehoram. It's the name of a Mexican food place off of Bel Air and Six. Same results. Don't ask what it does to your bowels. The hostilities of the Philistines and of the Arabs who lived near the Cushites. They attacked Judah, invaded it, and carried off all the goods found in the king's palace. All right, pause real quick before we read the rest of 17. It's just a note. Philistines, Arabs, and Cushites. Spend some time reading biblical prophecy, and these are not random. Keep reading. Uh, Not only are they not random, but notice that these that are enemies of God are being used by God, and those that are calling themselves loyal to God are not able to be used by Him. Such is the problem in Christendom. Pick up in verse 17 at the beginning again for me. They attacked Judah, invaded it, and carried off all the goods found in the king's palace, together with his sons and wives. Not a son was left in them, except Ahaziah, the youngest. Alright, so some of your translations may say Jehoaz, others may have a footnote that say Jehoaz, we want to clear something up really quickly for you. I'm going to throw this slide on the screen again. Remember, Ahaziah, the youngest son of Jehoram, also called Jehoaz, had an uncle or two or three, essentially with the exact same name. Jehoaz may have been a nickname for the youngest son to distinguish him from his numerous uncles with the exact same name. This is not that uncommon. When we have three names, four names in the same room for different people, we give each other nicknames. It's how this often works, and he was the baby in the family. (laughs) Jehoaz is a variant of Ahaziah. NIV just works to keep the issue clear so that you can follow it. This is, as we mentioned earlier, not that different than a family reunion in the South. Yeah. We have a lot of guys with the same name, and they're human beings like everyone else, and they work to distinguish who you're speaking about. Don't be confused by it if you're reading in a different translation. We're talking about the youngest son of the king. Verse 18. After all this, the Lord afflicted Joram with an incurable disease of the body. Man, if this doesn't get your attention, then what would? I, mean, I, I don't know. How, are you you're sitting through this? <laughs> I mean, for me, I go to Taco Bell and eat one time, and what happens after is enough for me to never do it again. God was really trying to get his attention. Even the Philistines in 1 Samuel 5 and 6 reconsidered their ways when God afflicted their posterior regions. Yeah, they did. I mean, that was enough for them to say, hey, we gotta we got to figure out how to get right. 
Look, the sinful nature is incurable and must be put to death. Yeah. It cannot be healed. I'm not going to nurse it. This is a problem that cannot be healed. This is a problem that causes death, and you have to put to death. Let's pick up in verse 19. In the course of time, at the end of the second year, his bowels came out. <laughs> and he died in great pain. <laughs> Wait, what kind of pain? Great pain. Okay. No fire in his honor as they did for his father. Look, say it with me. His bowels, his bowels came out. Came out. The Hebrew says exactly what you think it says. His bowels came out. The Greek says exactly what you think it says. The word's actually related to colon. His colon came out. Can I say that the sinful nature must be executed? When you simply excuse it, it ends up embarrassing you. The word of God will drive this nastiness out of you. Amen. Hebrews 4.12 says this. For the word of God, the lamp, is active and alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. What kind of sword? Double-edged. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. You can try to hide it, but it's not hidden from Him. Getting away from the light, it hides it from others, but not from Him. Everything is uncovered and bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. When we love and embrace the Word, it will expose and execute the sinful nature. If you wait to be judged by the Word of God... Then it looks more like this next slide. You ready? Judges 3.20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword. By the way, I bet it was a double-edged sword. From his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Both Eglon and Jehoram were both exposed by the word of God. Because they did not love and heed the word of God. Come on. In this house. We will read the Word. Say, read it. Read it. We will need the Word into our souls. We will heed the Word so that we will bring glory to the King. Amen. Read it. Read it. Need it. Heed it. All heaven rejoices when a sinner is transformed through repentance. But no one Say no one one. should mourn over a man who refuses to repent. Yeah, you didn't cheer for that the same way. But heaven does, and you're going to see that. Pick up in verse 20. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem 38 years. He passed away to no one's regret and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. To no one's regret. Look, we're going to do a scripture string in closing, but I just want to say, 
When the wicked die, when the carnal man has been put to death, it should be to no one's regret. Those are clear lines that must exist in the church. You know, Judah, there was this queen in England, and she thought thought chocolate was sinful, pointy shoes were sinful. She wasn't well liked. And on the day that she died, a man walked into Parliament who happened to be her son. And the way that he gave the announcement was, gentlemen, you may smoke. (laughs) No one regretted her passing. And no one regretted this person's passing. You know, I suppose the reason they didn't regret his passing or her passing is because they found them to be grating against their soul. They didn't like them. The thing that we must reckon our lives with as born-again believers are the men and women that do die that we like and that God hateth. The areas of our own life that we like and that God hates. The words that Samuel spoke to Saul come to mind. How long will you mourn for them? Justin and I are going to read you a few passages out of Revelation. The first one's going to come from Revelation 15, 3 through 4. And sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. They co-authored it. Man, has got to be good then. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. And I wonder what deeds they're talking about. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? They're saying this because of the judgments that have come upon the earth as God is removing sin from the land. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, willingly or unwillingly. For your righteous acts have been revealed. 16.7 is our next one. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord, God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Revelation 19, 2-3 says, For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! 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 The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Look, we have a job to mourn, but we do not mourn over God's judgment over wicked people, wicked kings. We mourn over our own condition. We don't mourn because we are being judged by the word. We mourn over our condition. Then we rejoice when we repent. We rejoice over others' repentance. And then we side with God when judgment occurs. Let's let's do that again. It's important for you to grasp this. It's, it's a Christian ethic that you have to get, and it's not taught in Samaritan religion, so you're not used to it. You, you're here, but you, you don't understand it. We mourn over our condition. Jesus said that in the Sermon of the Mount. That's why the tabernacle starts where it does. Whose condition do you mourn over? Mine. You mourn over your own darkness because you want transformation. You rejoice over repentance wherever it occurs, in anyone that it occurs in. If you hear tomorrow that Bill Clinton is repenting, then get happy. Heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. But we side with God when judgment occurs. Period. Every time. The alternative is unthinkable. You would be siding with the darkness that resides in men. So again... Mourn your condition. Rejoice when repentance occurs. 
and side with God in every judgment, no matter where it occurs or how it occurs. We already mentioned to you 1 Samuel 16 earlier. Samuel was a man that we read about earlier that knew what the lamp of God was like. 16.1 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Saints, what we want to say to you tonight is fill your horn with oil and be on your way. Stand up as the men of God that you were called to be. Press into the light for God has given you a lamp. And go raise up other men who will do the same. Look into the face of the darkness in Samaria that is around us and is in you that we might be transformed into something that is holy and that is renewed. We have a summary of Jehoram's life that we'd like to read to you. Look, if you didn't learn it from Saul, if you don't learn it from Jehoram, no matter how highly you're called, no matter what the prophecies have been about your life, you are replaceable if you do not cling to the lamp of the Lord. He will raise up another in your stead His work will still get done and you'll still be blaming others for what you failed to do. The answer to all of this is clinging to the Word, the Spirit, and the community of God. Look how this commentator, and he's just a commentator, how he summarizes Jehoram's life. Jehoram, from 853 to 841, including his co-regency, the time he got to reign with his daddy. He's the first king for whom the chronicler, probably Ezra, has nothing good to say. The whole point of writing chronicles is to show the unbreakable promise of God to the house of Judah, and he can't find a good thing to say about this king. And it wasn't because he had a bad lineage. It wasn't because he lacked resources. It wasn't because there were no prophets in his day. It's because he did not cling to the word and spirit of God. He points out, he begins with fratricidal murder, killing his brothers to secure his own position. Man, how do you secure your position in conversation? How do you esteem yourself? Is it at the expense of others or is it based on what God is doing in you and you alone? Furthermore, He goes on to point out Jehoram's marriage brings the cult of Baal into Judah. This this ministry is based on you pastoring your own home first. Period. The lamp of God cannot shine out of you to the nations if it's not shining in your home to your own family. The New Testament says this plainly. And then he goes on to reestablish high places that lead others into his own unfaithfulness. This is what happens when men love darkness instead of the light. They say they're serving the Lord. They have all of the right verbiage. They end up in church somewhere else, Samaritan church, and they try to get you to join them. This is leading others into prostitution. Only God's loyalty 
Whose loyalty? God's. God's loyalty to the Davidic covenant keeps Jehoram alive. And that only went so far. Because God's faithful to the promise even if He has to kill the man to make it come about. The kingdom of Judah will have its king. It will reign on earth. It will be a blessing to the descendants of David. But this man will not participate in it even though by birthright he was destined to. That ought to be a very sobering thing to every called in, called in Christ Christian in this room. I know that I'm going to minister to the nations. I know that I'm called to Israel. I know my family will be restored. I know that. I know that. Yes, and not one of those things will happen if you can't get along with your own brother. Not one of those things will happen if you don't properly tend to the Word and the Spirit in your own life. Say, but God said it. Yes, and He will be faithful to His Word, but you will die and someone else will be raised up in your place. You know what I find more acceptable than my death? The death of my sinful nature. I don't want somebody else to stick me with a sword, and I certainly don't want to have a blowout. I have the chance to let judgment begin with the house of God in my own life so that I have no fear of facing the embodiment of the Word of God on that day. The moral to this entire story is take the Word, the Spirit, and this community seriously. And God will do for you everything that His Word promised. If you do not, He still will take His Word seriously and He will still accomplish His will on earth. He will just use somebody besides you to do it. And you'll experience a Jehoram-like death. None of us want that. Do you want to win? Yes! Then we're going to keep the lamp blazing. Not flickering, not stuttering, blazing. And we're going to love anybody who helps us do that by pointing to areas that we can fuel our faith in the lamp of God. Yeah. Would you all stand to your feet? I'd like to read a passage to you, then we're going to pray. It's Philippians 2, 12 through 15. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. He's working in you through his spirit and his word. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine yeah. among them yeah. like stars, Amen. like great lamps. You will shine as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Let's pray.